The following is Class 1 on the Yoga Sutras, given by Ridayananda Das Goswami in fall of 2004 in San Luis Obispo. In this part, an introduction of the Yoga Sutra will be given for nine minutes, and then Sutras 1.1 to 1.22 will be discussed. So we're going to be doing the Yoga Sutras, and we hope to finish it within your lifetime. <laughs> Actually, within about two months, I think, approximately two months from now, uh, the sheet, with, the sheets which I gave out, have about I think 21 or 22 verses, which we'll try to cover tonight, because the sutras, as I was talking to Lynn, speaking to Lynn, actually have a, uh, they're almost like essays. There, there are sentences and paragraphs and topics and everything, and so sometimes you go too slow, you can kind of fall between the, the cracks, so to speak, and so. So first I'd like to explain what sutras are in general. The word sutra in Sanskrit, well, I, it's down here in a footnote, it's a, uh, a thread, which is sort of the, the, the essential meaning of thread or yarn, string, line, cord, wire, line, you get the idea. And so sutras are a genre of literature. That's one important thing to understand, that there are yoga sutras, but there are many other sutras. So. It's not that the other sutras follow the Yoga Sutra, the, the Yoga Sutra is something which was meant to fit into a very well-known and popular genre of literature in ancient India. Just like if someone writes a novel nowadays or a short story, it's an existing genre, or a non-fiction essay or a report or whatever. The goal was to be as pithy, as brief and concise as you could, to condense meaning into a few words. In fact, there's a famous saying of the ancient grammarians. They have their sutra, of course, by Panini. Panini is the famous Sanskrit grammarian who wrote the, uh, his sutras. And so there's a famous saying by an ancient grammarian that a grammarian would rather cut one syllable off a sutra than have a son. And this was like, like a, a culture in which having a, you know, a son was a big thing. And so... So the sutras are condensed, and uh, and of course, therefore, they require commentary. There are always commentaries associated with the sutras. Perhaps the most famous sutras of all are the Vedanta sutras, the Vedanta sutras, which are sort of like the major league theology of India, of ancient this ancient culture. There are the Vedanta sutras. There's a Mimamsa sutra, which actually opposed Vedanta philosophically. And there are uh, what are called Shota Sutras, based on Shruti, the ancient Vedas, which, which are for solemn rituals, public ceremonies involving the gods and so on. There are Griha Sutras, from the word Griha, which means home. And so rituals that you perform at home, sutras telling you how to carry out religious activities in your home. Then there are a very, a very important group called the Dharma Sutras, which give all the... Uh, all kinds of practical rules and laws and so on for this culture. So, so the sutras are a genre. And the yoga sutras, of course, are about yoga. So the word yoga comes from the root yuge. I guess I'll write it here. Uh, which means to connect, to bind, uh, to link, and so on. And we still have an echo of this in English in the word con, which is, you know, Latin with, and then conjugal, binding together. Or in the English word, well, from yoga, or related to yoga, yoke, which connects the ox, or whatever, whatever draft animal is used to the plow. So this is the basic root of yuj, and it's a very common word you'll find, for example, in the Gita and other literature like that, again and again, yukta, which means connected, linked. 
And so the yoga means the link, the connection. And, and so just as in English, to be connected means to kind of be in touch, to, to know what's happening and, and, and to do things right. So, so yoga comes to mean the act of yoking, joining, attaching, harnessing animals, employment, a use, and application. App, application in this sense. Uh, <laughs> this is a small board, so I'm going to be constantly uh, erasing things. <laughs> there is a... In India, there are six, you could call orthodox, philosophies. And by orthodox, it means they're based on the Vedas. Other groups, like the Jains and the Buddhists, uh, rejected the Vedic authority and set out on their own to establish their own authoritative literature and, and precepts and so on. But there were six groups that based themselves on the Vedas. And so they're accepted within Hinduism. And so they go in pairs. They go in pairs. I already mentioned Vedanta and Mimamsa, who oppose each other. Sometimes they're opposing pairs. But in the case of yoga, it's important to understand, and this is something which is pointed out in all the translations of the Yoga Sutras, that yoga went with another philosophy called Sankhya. And in fact, what we always hear is that yoga, which is a, the Yoga Sutras, which are very practical, they want to teach techniques they assume or, or take for granted the Sankhya philosophy. And even in the Gita, Krishna talks about Yoga Sankhya or Pritagva. Krishna, there's a statement in, in the second chapter of the Gita where Krishna says that only the childish, Bala, think that Yoga and Sankhya are different. And that, uh, and that if you perfect one of these, you get the benefits of both. That's a statement from the Gita. In other words, if you really understand Sankhya, you get the benefit of Yoga. If you really understand Yoga, you get the benefit of Sankhya. So these are a pair. The word Sankhya, by the way, so you'll know what this is about, it comes from uh, the prefix sung. If you can see that, which means together. It's also related probably to the English sum, like total. And uh, kya, which we'll find later actually in this class. Uh, kya means to narrate, to describe, to inform, to explain. And so this word Sankhya comes to mean number. This is the Sanskrit word for number, to enumerate. And therefore, the word Sankhya as a philosophy is a philosophy which tries to figure out what are the basic principles of reality? What are the fundamental real things in the world? And, the, and as we go through this class, I'll point out the jargon whenever Patanjali mentions a particular Sankhya word, which he does all the time, and I'll point those out. The fundamental real things. And so Patanjali is assuming these categories. The word, by the way, for a fundamental category a fundamental real thing in Sanskrit is tattva, which you may have... And so, I, anyway, I could go on and on about this word. It's a fascinating word, but that's just the word tattva, tattva. So anyway, that's Sankhya. What are the fundamental real things in, in, in reality, in the universe? And uh, the yoga system assumes that this thing is correct. And to give an example of some of the fundamental entities that are talked about in Sankhya, for example, Purusha that there is a soul or a person, an eternal person. There is prakriti, material nature. And there are gunas, different qualities. We'll get to these, actually, as we go along in the text. But that's, so that's what yoga is, basically. It's one of the six Hindu or Orthodox ancient philosophies. It's paired with Sankhya because it assumes the philosophy of Sankhya to be true and, and bases its teaching on that. And it's a sutra, which was a, a, a genre of literature. In other words, if you wanted to be taken seriously as a philosopher or as a philosophical community, 
If you wanted your teachings to be taken seriously, you had to present them in the form of sutras, which were these... You had to present sutras, which were these condensed uh, philosophical statements, and because they were so uh, condensed, they required commentaries and so on. Patanjali in the Yoga Sutras did what often happened in India and in other parts of the world. That is, he presented the yoga philosophy so well that people sort of forgot what came earlier. Almost like Homer, it's thought that Homer in the Iliad and the Odyssey actually culminated an oral tradition, which then sort of died because he did it so well. So anyway, that's Patanjali. Uh, generally, he's dated to just after Christ, the early part of this era, because he uses some of the language and some of the concepts which are found in Buddhism as it developed in India and so on, so by that type of reference. However, it's taken for granted that he's teaching something which was much more ancient. And I'm going to spend a little bit of time on the first sutras because they really set the theme for the whole work and, and it's important to understand clearly what Patanjali is really doing, what his project is. And uh, so the first, I won't write these, you, actually you have it there. The first sutra is Atta Yoganushasanam, now the, the yoga teaching. Now the yoga teaching. Uh, the word Atta, now, is a common way that sutras begin. The Vedanta Sutra begins with the word Atta, now. And, and the ancient commentators explain it this way. If you begin a teaching by saying now, it means something came before. And the idea is that now means that now that you are ready for this teaching, now that you've finished with preliminary teachings, that you've figured out that you're not going to be completely happy just, you know, playing the stock market or, or you know, being the buffest person on your block or whatever. In other words, when, when we've kind of gotten through some of the simple stuff, now we can get to wisdom. And so, that, and so therefore it begins with the word atta now. The word Anushasadam is very important because I won't, uh, I don't want to criticize my predecessors, but if you look at the translations of the Yoga Sutras, they kind of spin this word. And so I, I want to look at this word Anushasadam because now we're going to get the Yoga Anushasadam. I think Feuerstein calls it the exposition of yoga and someone else calls it the teaching of yoga. Let's see what the word really is. So this word anushasanam, which is a prefix anu, and then this is the verbal root right here, shas, that's the verbal root, and then it just becomes a neuter noun by adding this ending, anam, so anushasanam. Now the word anu in Sanskrit means to follow. And so there's the immediate sense that we're getting something traditional, potentially saying, I'm not making this up. I'm actually following my predecessors. So it's a teaching Shastanam, which is following something that came before. That's the first thing he's telling us. It's an Anushasanam. Now, the root Shas is very important because one uh, very important word that comes from this root, Shas, if you just add Tra. Shastra. Yeah, Shastra, which means a scripture, an authoritative scripture. Tra, it sort of means instrumentality, like something which is the instrument of this. So, the instrument of... So shas, shas really means to command. It's, and in the translations, which of course are meant for Western public, which is sort of allergic to authoritarianism, they kind of soften this. But I just noted down before I came here, these are some of the meanings of the verb anushas, from which you get this noun anushasanam. To rule, to govern, 
to order, to teach, to direct, advise, to chastise, punish, or correct. Shasanam is not merely an exposition or a teaching. It's an authoritative teaching. It's something which has the natural authority to command us. And the fact that it's anushasanam means that it's coming. It's traditional. It's coming in a line of great teachers. So, if you read this and you were fluent in Sanskrit, if you were, you know, a Sanskrit person, it would sound a little heavier than exposition teaching. It would sound, this is authoritative, this is something which, which has the right to command us, and it's coming from a, a recognized tradition. So all that is there in the word Anushasana. And that's what Patanjali says he's going to give us, the Yoga Anushasana. Then, the next, having said that, he gives the first Anushasana, which is in, in, the, in the next sutra. And what he says is, as you can see, Yoga Chitta Vritti Nirodha. Chitta Vritti Nirodha. These are all important words. Chitta means consciousness. Chitta, consciousness. He says, Yoga is, this is the definition of Yoga, Yoga is, uh, well, the translation you have here. I'll start with the translation. I just threw something together. Uh, yoga restrains the turnings of the mind. Restrains the... The word vritti, which is translated in... Uh, well, let's see how people translate it. And then I'll say what it literally means. In... Uh, well, let's start with... With the Master Ayanga. Uh, he translates this word vritti as... Uh, let's see... State of mind, fluctuations in mind, course of conduct, behavior, and so on. He calls it the movements in consciousness, which is, is not an incorrect translation. But what this word vritti, the chitta vritti, is what has to be stopped. What we have, uh, the word nirodha means to stop or to check, to curb. So, so the vritti here, the root is vrit, and, uh, which means literally to turn. To turn, to turn round, to revolve, to move or go on, to get along, to occur, to exist. But, but, but the essential meaning, again the root meaning is to turn. Because if you know Aristotle, Aristotle thought the cycle was the perfect motion. And in, in ancient cultures in general, they had this sense of, think of, of the universe moving in cycles, the, the, the heavenly bodies and so on. And so the word to turn also comes to mean the word to exist, to function, to, to, to advance, and so on. Patanjali is saying that you have to stop the turning of the mind. The mind is like spinning, or, or the mind is... And turning also in the sense of sort of going off course. You know. Now, the word nirodha, which is the action, checking the mind... Uh, I've given you a little definition there in the in the footnote. Is, is um, to hold back. The verb is to hold back, stop, hinder, confine, restrain. There's a few important. Things. First of all, this is a negative definition of yoga, because if I say yoga is to stop something, yoga is to stop something. Okay, so let's say we stopped it. Then what? So there we are. But there are positive things. There's samadhi. There's dedication to a divinity. There's all kinds, of, as you'll see later. But, but Patanjali begins with a negative definition. You have to stop something, which, is, which are the turnings of the mind. Another very important thing you have to understand about this is to really penetrate this ancient literature. And that is not only in this sutra, uh, the Yoga Sutras, but also in the Upanishads, 
you find statements which, which are negative, as this is. Negative, not in, the sense of, of, in a pejorative sense, it just says you have to stop something. But that same thing that you're stopping can exist in another way spiritually. Take vritti, the, the, the chitta vritti, the turning of the mind. I, I cited two yoga sutras in the notes here. Uh, one at um, four, 3.43, where Panini says, that Patanjali says that, that uh, the veil which obscures light is destroyed uh, by a particular type of vritti. In other words, there's another vritti of the mind which actually destroys darkness. And then again he says at 4.18 uh, that ch- the chitta vrittiya uh, lead to a state, of, a desirable state uh, where, there's, where there's knowledge. So, it's just like you'll find certain statements in the Upanishads that say that no words can describe the truth. But then the Upanishads themselves are full of words. Or that the Lord has no form and other statements that say the Lord has an eternal form. And so certain negative statements are meant to rule out the material version of something. So when we hear that you have to stop the chitta vritti, the, the turning of the mind, it means material turnings of the mind because we hear later that there, the mind can move in other ways which actually lead to knowledge. And so this is, this is a characteristic of this literature, the Upanishads and the Sutras, that a negative statement will refer to the material version of whatever. And you'll find that same item, that same activity, or that same entity later glorified because it's in a spiritual version. So we should not interpret this second sutra to mean that you just turn off your mind totally. That's not what it means. It's, it's talking about the material version of thinking and mental activity. So, uh, moving right along. So having... Another thing is that I should mention about the Yoga Sutras. I, I thought of this a few days I want to tell you. This is like one of the most ancient self-help books. It's like, for example, let's say you want to write a book on psychology, like how you can be more peaceful and, and not be troubled by irrational fears or whatever. Now, if you want to write a book like that, and you want to reach as wide an audience as possible, it wouldn't just be, let's, I mean, you could write a book, let's say, on Christian psychology, or Jewish psychology, or Buddhist psychology, or Hindu psychology, or, or Sufi psychology, but, but you might just write a book on psychology. And that's what Patanjali is doing. Patanjali is, Patanjali is giving a very general description of how you can, sort of like yoga for dummies, or you know, how, how you can be successful in yoga. And he's really not getting into the specifics of different Indian religious views or philosophies. He's keeping it very general. And therefore, you have this first general statement that yoga means you have to stop this material turning of the mind. Stop the mind from turning off the path. And then he says then, well, then he says then, ta-da, if you do that, here's the, here's the reward, that the seer, which is you, we are seers, we are conscious beings, we're not just dead things, we are conscious beings, we are seers, then the seer has a standing of a stana, stana, related to our English word stand, 
The seer has a standing in Swarupa, and, and this is another very key term. I won't go spend so much time on each sutra. Well, I don't know if I will or not, but this is a very key term. Swa, if you know Spanish, mi casa, su casa, is the word su, his, her, or yours, and so on. And uh, I mean, in Latin, like sui, sui generis, or if you know, anyway, Portuguese, sua, French, sans, anyway, it's the same word. So this word swa, one's own, and rupa means form, in one's own form. And here, uh, Patanjali says sorupe, means in one's own form. And this comes to mean one's nature, one's it's also pregnant with meaning because it, it definitely implies, and it comes to mean that often, that we have an eternal form, that we're not just formless things. Patanjali says that when you stop the turnings of the mind, in other words, when you do yoga properly, what happens is you get a standing, you become situated solidly in your own real form, in your own real nature. Which also tells us that yoga is not going to take us to a place where our individuality dissolves and we just merge into everyone else and we all become a, a sort of this big divine blob. That's not going to happen. So, if you like being a person, that's good news. Well, that's bothered me about, you know, yoga and going like I have to give up all my humanness. That would be a disaster, because you're a good person. <laughs> We'd lose you. Yeah, my question was, do I want to go that way, where... Inter yeah, that's not what Patanjali is teaching. What happens is that because Patanjali is kind of general, because it's sort of a you know, self-help book, yoga, what happens is people come to these sutras with their own ideas and kind of read them into the sutras. But this is what he's, rupa, this word rupa literally means form, body, it's often the word used for body. So, so when you do yoga perfectly, you are situated in your own form. So this is not, there's nothing in the yoga sutras about giving up your individuality. And the Bhagavad Gita is even more adamant on this point. It's about, I mean, I could quote you many uh, mantras from the Upanishads, such as, Nityo nityanam, chaitanas chaitananam, eko bahunam jodhidhati kaman. That among the many eternal beings, there is one who is most important. Among the many conscious beings, there is one because the one supplies all the needs of the many. So the idea that there is a plurality, there are many eternal beings. Is there any Upanishads? It's, anyway, we'll see more of this in, in potentially. So, that's uh, the third. That, that's the fruit of yoga practice. You become situated as a seer in your own real form, your own real nature. Otherwise, in Sutra 4, Itaratra, which means otherwise, you get the booby prize, which is Vritti Sarupya. And uh, very quickly, the word sa means with, and rupa again means form, and from this you get the word sarupya, which means to take on the same form as something else. In other words, if you don't practice yoga properly, you kind of, you become your own mental problems. That's what Pine potentially is saying. You become your mental mess. So, 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 so that's, the, that's the choice that potentially is setting up for us. 
you can become situated in your own real spiritual form, your own real nature, or you have to take on the form of all the stuff that's going on in our head, that mental stuff. And it's, it's obvious which is a better choice. So, now he's going to tell us what these mental, these material mental things are, these turnings. And he says that, there are five of them, and they are uh, problematic and not problematic, or painful and not painful, trouble and not trouble. And then he tells, tells us what the five are. They are pramana, viparya, vikalpa, nidrasmitya. The first one, pramana, I was thinking about this, and it's translated in different ways, but what the word pramana literally means is evidence. If you know the famous statement by the Greek uh, sophist Protagoras, who has cynically said, man is the measure of all things, of things that are that they are, of things that are not that they are not. In other words, there's no objective standard. We are the measure of all. So the, the word pramana is pra, which almost is like the English pro, it's actually related to that, like forth or pro, and sort of energizes the word. And then mana comes from the root ma to measure. So th this means the measurement of something. And therefore the word pramana means evidence. It means evidence, proof. This is the Sanskrit word for proof or evidence, the measure of something. And so when it's referred to here as a mental problem, as one of the ways the mind spins off the path, I think it has, I think it's something, what it sounds to me like after decades of Sanskrit, what it kind of sounds to me like is being, what we uh, indicate, we say, being judgmental. In other words, being judgmental and really wanting to, like, uh, measure everything and, and prove things. And I mean, obviously some things need to be proved, some things need to be measured, but it, it's sort of, in other words, being judgmental as opposed to making good judgments. And that's kind of what this word means here. Being judgmental as opposed to just making sound judgments. I mean, unless potentially made judgments, he couldn't have written a sutra. He had to choose this word and not that word. And so again, we can't be fanatical and silly about it. But it's something like being judgmental. The next one is uh, viparya, which literally just means get, going backwards. It just means a mistake, getting everything wrong, going backwards. Literally means going backwards. And uh, vikalpa. Vikalpa, which, let's see, let me see the translations I gave you before I... Oops, where'd it go? Oh, that's right there. Okay. Imagination, yeah, imagination. That's good enough. And then Nidra, sleep, and Smriti, and memory. I mean, obviously, you can't... I mean, unless Patanjali remembered Sanskrit, he couldn't have written his sutras. Unless he remembered what yoga is about, he couldn't have written his sutras. And so, it doesn't literally mean that, that you don't remember anything because you would become an idiot. I mean, literally an idiot. You wouldn't be able to do anything. You'd be dysfunctional. So, so what is he talking about here when he says that one problem that yoga corrects is the fact that you remember things? Well, we all know we remember some things we probably wouldn't... We, we shouldn't remember or we get conditioned by our previous experiences and so on. And so again, this is as, as um, uh, Eliade, the famous teacher Eliade, uh, pointed out. Uh, this is probably the original depth psychology. So we're talking about, whenever you hear words like remembering, imagining, proving something, it's, you should try to understand when do these things become mental problems. 
And so it's the sense in which these ordinary activities become mental problems that yoga has to counter them. Not in any salubrious, just any normal, necessary sense that you have to sometimes remember things, otherwise you wouldn't know what your name was or you wouldn't be able to tie your shoelaces or whatever. But at the point where remembering becomes a problem, the point where trying to prove everything becomes a problem or judging things and so on. Is this like remembering so you don't have a fresh outlook on anything, you can't see anything for what it is because you already have an idea of what you think it is? Sure, absolutely. That's a very good example. When memory, remembering conditions us and, and, and limits us, that, that's a good example. He says that uh, by pramana, that's one six, uh, I'm sorry, one seven. There are three kinds of pramanas, three kinds of evidence, which are pratyaksha, literally direct perception, like sense perception, anumana, which means induction, reasoning your way to things, and agama, uh, authoritative tradition, such as a scripture or just any authoritative tradition. These are very standard, by the way. Again, Patanjali is giving nothing new. This is very standard, very traditional. He's just citing what everybody kind of knows in terms, in this culture, within this culture. So these are the three kinds of evidence. And then he says that by mistake, iparya, I mean mitya jnanam, a false understanding, atta rupa pratishtam, which is not based on pratishtam, rupa, the actual form, ta, of that thing that you're judging. In other words, I, I, have a, I have a false awareness of something which is not based on the way that thing really is. So again, this is real... He's just almost like citing these things. This is not. This would not come as news to anyone that read this, and that was within this culture. If you have any questions on these things, or, or any comments or insights, we can discuss. Otherwise, I'll, I'll try to get through it and then look at what the whole thing adds up to. And then he says, by vikalpa, imagination, he means shabda jnana, which shabda means word, a knowledge of words, anupati. It, it comes as a consequence of knowledge of words, but vastu shunya, devoid of substance. Vastu in Sanskrit means a real thing, a real object, you can actually, you know, a tangible object. Vastu shunya, shunya devoid, it, it, it's devoid of any substance, and it only comes as a result of knowing what words mean. Like a unicorn, for example. I mean, uni, one, and corn, I guess, you know, the cuerno, the horn, one horn. And so we know, we, we, we have a shabda jnana, to quote, to use the same language as Patanjali. We have awareness of the word and anupati. As a consequence of knowing what the words mean, there is an imagination. We, and yet, there's no vastu, there's no real thing that it refers to. So that's how he defines imagination. Then... Nidra, uh, sleep. This is abhava pratyalambana vritti. It is a turn, sleep. By that he means, I guess, something like dreaming. A turning of the mind, a vritti, alambana, which hangs on, which is based on abhava, a perception of that again, which doesn't exist. And so when he says sleep, it's something like dreaming. A turning of the mind which hangs on a, a conviction or perception which has which doesn't refer to any existing thing. And then Smithy simply, and this is, I think, what uh, you said, Lynn, about remembering. Now we'll see what he means by why he's mentioning memory as a problem. 
He says it is asam pramosha, not letting go of or not clearing away uh, an experienced object. Some some vishaya, which means an object of cognition. Some vishaya anubhuta, which you experience, which you perceive. So you perceive some object, and then some way you can't let go of it, or you can't let it, you can't clear it away. It's just kind of sort of haunting you, or just something which you have no reason to always be remembering. It conditions you. So I think you're right on that one. And then here's something else that Lynn talked about yesterday, where uh, Patanjali says that by practice, literally repetition, practice, by practice and vairagya, detachment, dispassion, these are stopped. Tanirodha. The same word Niroda, stopping, checking, curving. These mental problems are stopped. Tatrastito. And upon being situated in that condition of having stopped those, or, or no, I'm going to do that again here. He says what abhyasa means. I'm sorry, he's defining what abhyasa. Abhyasa, by practice, he means yatna, effort. Yatna means an effort, trying. And so this is important because he's not talking about just a mechanical thing where you sort of don't think about it. He says it's an effort. You're really trying. It's a yetna. It means really trying in that situation, in that thing we're talking about. You get literally a firm grounding. You're on firm ground when you have asevita, when you have cultivated that practice, satkara, faithfully, very honestly and faithfully cultivated it, nairantarya, uninterruptedly. Nairantarya means uninterruptedly and dirgakal for a long time. So when you've done your practice, real effort, not just mechanical, real effort, for a long time and without interruption, you've done it honorably, satkara, then dridhabhumi, literally you're on firm ground in your practice. And, now he says, that, that's what abhyasa is. He's talked about abhyasa, what it is. It's a real effort made in that practice. And if you do it for a long time, without interruption, honorably, you're on firm ground. But what's vairagya? What does it mean by detachment or dispassion? He says, drishtanu shravika vishaya vitrishnasya vashikara sangya vairagya. For some reason, which I don't know, it's often easiest to translate Sanskrit by starting at the end and going backwards and it comes out English. So I'll do that here. Vairagyam, dispassion, detachment, sangya has as its sign, as its sort of uh, visible or, or recognizable sign, uh, vashikara, bringing things under control. When you, when, when you bring things under control, that's the, that's the recognizable sign of detachment. And it's the bringing, establishing control done by a person who is the Trishna. Trishna uh, or Trishna in Sanskrit literally means thirst. And this is kind of how you say hankering in Sanskrit, to thirst after something, like material hankering. And V means, uh, if you know Italian, via, like away, so not. So not thirsting. Not thirsting after vishaya, the objects, the sense objects which have been drishta, which you have seen, objects that you have seen, and anushravika, 
heard about from others, again, under, you know, following. So, and this is a very common way of speaking in Sanskrit wisdom literature, drishta, shruta, or here, drishta, nushavik. In other words, some things you've personally experienced, but some things you've heard about from others. Like, man, I went to the island of Bali, and that is, well, Bali, right? I'll give an example. And, and so, our mind becomes attracted and attached by things we've seen, but things we hear about from others or read about. And that creates all kinds of material desires. So, it's a very common way of talking in Sanskrit, the drishta shruta, seen and heard. Patanjali here says that when you don't thirst after objects that you have experienced, seen yourself, or heard about from others, this taking control is the recognizable sign of detachment. That's literally what he's saying here. I'm trying to be very literal because I have several translations of the Yoga Sutras, and they're usually not literal. And I'm kind of a... I mean, I realize there's all kinds of meanings in it and interpretations can be valid, but I like to start with what it literally means and then go out from there. So that's what it literally means. That's just passion. That's what he means by detachment. That taking control is a recognizable sign of someone who has given up their thirst after objects seen or experienced and heard about from others. So that sounds like something that has to be accomplished, that you have to do, you have to take control of. Yeah, because kara, vashi, vashi means under control. And kara is the verb to do, the Sanskrit... Uh, well, here's another little linguistic treat for you. This creed, this root creed, from which we get English words like create and uh, increase, or if you know the Spanish crecer and so on. So this creed thing is related to the Sanskrit verb to do or to make. And so literally making control, making it under control. And, and, and remember, yatna, that uh, the uh, abhyasa is a real effort. And similarly, detachment is an action. It's a dynamic action of taking control so that you give up your thirst for material objects that you have personally seen or heard about from others. How about the word kriya? Kriya, yes, from the same root. Kriya, which literally means action. Kriya literally means action or activity. And then it comes to mean special things in different schools of thought. So, then the next verse is related, it's very important. Patanjali says, Tatparam, beyond that. So he says, okay, this is, he's told us what uh, Abhyasa is in Vairagya, then he says, beyond that, Tatparam, there is knowledge of the person and thirstlessness, literally, from the gunas. This is very important. The word kyati, uh, I think I gave you some definitions. Kyati. He, he gives the term that beyond this is Purusha Kyati. This is what is beyond Abhyasa and Vairagya. Beyond mere practice and detachment is uh, Purusha Kyati. And I'll explain what that means. Purusha is, is a very key term in Sankhya, as I mentioned. The person. It literally means the person. And it means the soul. The individual soul who's an irreducible fact in reality. An irreducible fact that you're a person. And kya, this root kya, which I've given here, is uh, it means to declare, to know, to perceive, so to make known. So kyati means uh, perception, knowledge, 
renowned celebrity. And, and uh, Patanjali uses it here in the uh, ablative form, which in Sanskrit means because of. In other words, because of the khyati of the purusha, because of the celebrity of the purusha, or because of knowing, not only knowing, but kind of like, I don't know, you know reading about the purusha in, in the yoga people magazine or something. The, but the reason I mention this is because if you know Sanskrit, you're hearing all these things. What you're hearing is that you have to know the Purusha, the person, the individual person, as a famous fact, as something, as something which has celebrity, which has prestige, which is, which is known to be declared. The fact that there is an individual spiritual person. And because you know that, because you know that, there is thirstlessness. You become free of material desires. Not by denying yourself, but the opposite. By embracing your real self as a person. Yes? Doesn't Purusha also mean Krishna? Yeah, because it could mean the supreme person or God by the, by the many names that God is called. Mm-hmm. So a capital appeal, they don't use capitals in Sanskrit, but this is very important. He, so, so Patanjali is saying the opposite of what many people say in the name of Patanjali. Patanjali is saying that it is by knowing and celebrating, really, and declaring that there is an eternal person, spiritual person, that you become free of all this material desire, which, you know, gives us so much trouble. Not by denying yourself as a person. It's very important, I think. That's what he's, that's what he's literally saying. I, mean, I put the, all the definitions I've give you, given you here in the footnotes are from the standard Sanskrit dictionary that everybody uses. It's just the standard Sanskrit English dictionary. Having said that, another, remember I told you at the beginning that sometimes things are uh, spoken of negatively, like chitta, vritti, niroda, but that in the positive version, it's something to be accepted. And here's an example in text 1.17. Vitarka vichara nandasmita rupanudamatsam pragyata. Basically, it's a long list of things, and from this list of things, you get a trophy, which is some pragyata. Some, again, means complete or proper, and pra means going for it. Sort of, and such was kind of what it sounds like in Sanskrit, going for it. And, uh,. And jyata, a state of knowledge. So, if you look at 117, the last word, sampragyata, is the result of everything that precedes it. it you know, mat, the la- those little two dots, I don't have diacritical marks on my computer, I'm getting them, so I just put two dots, means a long vowel. Wherever there's two dots, it's a long vowel. So, from this list of things, vitarka, vichara, ananda, asmita, rupa, uh, rupa, anuga, mat, from all those things, you get this full state of knowledge. So look at the list. Vitarka means analysis. The word tarka is logic in Sanskrit. The word tarka is the standard word for logic. One of the words for logic, so vitarka means analyzing things, vichara also considering, analyzing, these words are practically synonymous. Ananda, from bliss, from happiness. And asmita, I mean, this is great stuff. I'll show you what asmita. The word asmi in Sanskrit means I am. It's like Spanish. You don't need the pronoun because 
you know, the way the verbs are like soy, soy, no sé quién. So, actually means I am. Uh, uh, the M, by the way, which is used in the first person chapter, is still present in Latin languages like hablamos and things, linguistics. So, actually means I am and ta, which we have in English in the form of T, like beauty or felicity or generosity. We still have it, the, this form. It just means ness, I amness. Or the state of I am. In other words, individuality. It's a way of saying individuality. I amness. Or, it, or like we do it in English, individuality. So us, me, ta. I amness. So your being an individual is something that leads to this knowledge. Analyzing leads to knowledge. I mean, frankly speaking, if you didn't have some thing going on up there that could analyze how the heck are you going to read the Yoga Sutra? I mean, Patanjali knows that. You, you can't be a moron and read this book. Or you can't be someone that's completely renounced analysis and figure out what this means. So when, when, when Patanjali says that the, the mind's turning, he means the wrong one, the bad one, the stuff that takes you away from the spiritual path. But here he has a list of stuff that leads to... Uh, that leads to this full and proper knowledge. So, what does Sampradaya do? Oh, could you do that just a minute? Huh? Sampradaya? Yeah. Uh, I do that after. Oh, yeah, yeah. sure. Oh, Sampradhyata? No, Sampradaya. Why oh, didn't I write that, did I? Huh? Oh, that's another one, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's a spiritual community, but, but maybe afterwards I can explain. Oh. So I'm afraid I'll lose it. But, but I'll do it. I'll do it for you. I mean, I'll have to, otherwise you won't feed me. <laughs> so, so we just have a few more to finish up here. Virama Pratyabhyasa Purvaksangaskara Sheshawanya. Now, Panini says there's someone else that does it a different way. There's, again, he's not sectarian. He's, he's, he's giving different options. There are people, so I'll translate this literally for you. Starting with the word purva. Purva in Sanskrit means first. So there are people who take as their abhyasa purva, they put as their first practice. They put as their first practice, their abhyasa purva, a trust in or, or a conviction in virama, stopping. In other words, it's kind of just like Sometimes maybe, let's say you had a bad experience and you can't get it out of your mind, someone hurt you or whatever. And at a certain point you say, i got to get over this. Or someone says, you get over it. And so when you really become determined to get over it, like I'm going to stop thinking about that, I'm going to stop being nutty about that. That's kind of what he's talking about here. Virama Pratyaya, a trust or, or an awareness, I've got to stop it. And, and some people put that as their first practice. And the result of that is that they become samskara shesha. Shesha means a remnant. All that's left in their head, in terms of the bad stuff, is samskara. It's a very important term. It means different things in Sanskrit. Uh, but here, in this context, samskara, which is actually the... Uh, well, never mind. I'm going to the ground. Uh, Feuerstein translates it wonderfully as a subliminal activator. It, what it means is that... Uh, well, I mean, what would, the, what would the term be in modern psychology where I have some kind of experience that, that I, it's in my head and it's, it's determining, conditioning the way I perceive everything. It's kind of like conditioning me and I can't get over it. 
the memory of that, either even the unconscious memory, is always influencing, even determining how I respond to things. Like, you know, like, like I mean, I've met people that because they had a bad relationship, let's say, with their father, you know, take it out on me. I'm sure you've had experiences <laughs> like that, and so. Yeah, I mean, sometimes the people that walk and talk and are, you know, functional people, but it's just the way they act. I mean, it just influences the way they behave. You know what I'm talking about. You can be, yeah, it's just, just some memory, something that happened in your past that's still in your head and just influences the way you live. What? Yeah, it gets very extreme. But that's what sanskara is. So just the memory, just this, uh, it's, what's that? It doesn't have to be a trauma. It can even be a good experience. It can just be like always trying to find that good experience you once had. Or always trying to avoid the bad experience. Or always... It's just conditioning. You know, we become conditioned by our previous experiences. And that's what samskara is about. And so they just have like a remnant of this samskara. That's kind of like all that's left for them. Because they've stopped... Interestingly, what, what potentially says, this is not a very advanced state, they've stopped the actual stuff in the mind they're trying to but there's still the subtle conditioning there's still the subtle conditioning that's one stage and then he says there are people who are bhava pratyaya who still really believe in this world who are still kind of conscious of this world they're not otherworldly and that happens for people who are videha prakriti layanam they are sort of this is a technical thing that a lot of the translators struggle with laya means merged in or or the, the nature of videha. Videha means bodiless, without a body, and it refers to celestial beings that don't have gross bodies like we do. And so, this is a very common theme. I'll try to make this understandable for you. If you read this literature, I mean, a lot of these Vedic literatures, uh, wanting to go to material heaven is a big thing. It's a very big thing. So that you have sort of these two groups in this ancient culture. People that want to go and don't want to go. The people who are still materialists, even if on a higher level, like they do Vedic sacrifices and chant mantras and have gurus, but their goal is to go to material heaven, swarga. I mean, the great statement is uh, swarga kamo yajeta from the Mangsa Sutta. That if those who seek material heaven should sacrifice, should offer the Vedic sacrifices. Then you have the transcendentalists, the Vedantists, the Bhagavad Gita, or Patanjali here who say, no, even if you go to material heaven, you still have to come back again. When your good karma runs out, you, know, you, come, you crash again onto the earth, and even in material heaven, it, it all ends, the party's over. <laughs> and so you've got to go beyond that. In the Gita, Tetang Bhutva, Swarga Lokan Bishalam, Shine Punye, Marja Lokan Bishanti. They go up to the material heaven, enjoy these vast resources. Then their, shine, their piety is exhausted, and they fall back down again. So that's what he's talking about here, which is not what he mentioned in, in the commentaries, but um, that the videha prakitilayanam, those who are merged into this celestial nature wanting to go to the heaven, they're still conscious of this world. They're still disworldly, even though they're doing some yoga. They're trying to control their minds so they can focus on their celestial ambitions. And then, itareshaṁ, uh, for other people, they prioritize, literally purvaka, prioritize, Shadha, faith, virya, prowess, smriti, memory, samadhi, pragya, wisdom. Interestingly, memory, which was mentioned as one of the problems, is here mentioned right next to wisdom. As one of the paths, one of the components of the path. So again, it's that 
negative, positive things. So there are memories which lead to wisdom. For example, you may be about to do something horrendous, which, which might degrade you, and then suddenly you remember, oh, wait a second, you know, I'm supposed to be a spiritualist or something. So memory can actually keep us on the path. Tivrasam veganam asana. This is very heavy. Vega. Vega in Sanskrit means like a force. It's like, I mean, here's some of the translations. Some vega. Violent agitation, excitement, flurry, vehemence. Sort of like vehemence. And tivra means intense. It's like intense vehemence. It's a pretty intense sutra. And what Pani is saying is that the that goal of the proper consciousness, asana, it, it, is, it is proximate. Literally, it is, it is coming, it's approaching, or it has approached, it is near. It is near for those who are really fired up. It's basically what it sounds like in Sanskrit, you know, like really being fired up, really being, ah, you know, go for it, yoga. So that, it, 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 it's pretty heavy in Sanskrit. So if you're really fired up, if you're really going for it, you're determined, you're highly motivated, Something like that. If you're highly motivated, then potentially says it's near. The result is near. And finally, he says that that there are distinctions in practitioners. It's not that everybody's the same. There are distinctions because of the fact that there's mridu madhyadika matratva. Because some people are kind of mridu means sort of soft. They're sort of soft and light. Some people are madhya, moderate, and then adhimatra is sort of like over the top. I mean, literally, because adi actually means over. <laughs> and ma, I told you, the measure, mantra is a measure, some sort of like, just, you know, over, like really, really extreme or intense. But in a positive sense, sort of uh, extremely, like we would say, like extremism is not good in English, but extremely dedicated is good. So it's the second, like being extremely dedicated. And that's the, those are the verses we were doing, so we actually finished. And... Uh, so just briefly to sum up, uh, Patanjali said in the very first sutra, he's going to give us a traditional authoritative teaching on yoga. That's actually what he said by saying yoga anushasana, a traditional authoritative teaching. He said that yoga means that you have to stop the mind from sort of spinning off out of control. And that when you do that, you become situated in your real form, your real nature. Otherwise, you take on the form of your mental junk, which you don't. We all know. I mean, we're. I mean, all of us are old enough to know that's not the way to go. And then he says, "Well, when I when I'm talking about these mental turnings, there there are five, which are sort of being judgmental or just getting things backwards and just being a daydreamer." or a night dreamer, I guess, dreaming, or, or being conditioned by memories of previous activities, and that these are sometimes pleasurable and sometimes painful, but they all have to be transcended. And then he defined, then he, for these five, he explains, we have to go over that again, he explains what each of these five are, like, you know, by being judgmental, either judgmental in terms of your own experience, or what you reason your way to, or what you've heard from authorities, and so on. And so he explains what all these are. And... Then he says that you, you can stop all this stuff by practice and detachment. And practice means there's a real effort. You're really trying. It's not just mechanical. And by detachment, he says that uh, you have to take control so that you're no longer thirsting after, literally, objects that you've personally seen or heard about from others. 
And beyond that is sort of celebrating yourself. I mean, beyond that is, is discovering and celebrating who you really are as an eternal spiritual being and really embracing that. And that leads to... Oops, I left that one little point. That le- another key Sankhya term, guna. It leads to not thirsting after any of the qualities of nature. This is more general. In other words, it doesn't simply mean that, okay, I no longer am attached to that car, this house, or this affair, or whatever. But the, the very... But nature itself I'm not hankering after because these gunas are the, the, the goodness, the passion, and, 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 and ignorance... And so I'm actually detached from the fundamental qualities of nature. So that it's not just that I met this passionate thing and now I'm in love, but, it, but I'm no longer attached to any passionate thing. In other words, I, passion no longer can, can pull me down or, or ignorance can't pull me down. I don't even become attached to material piety, which can also become a barrier to true transcendence. So, here we're going beyond mere objects to the fundamental qualities of nature itself. So, any object or event in any one of those qualities won't get me. And uh, then, then he says different paths. Some people get to this point of knowledge by analyzing things and analyzing themselves. Some people by just, you know, by the philosophy, just say no to the chitta-vrittis. That'd be a good bumper sticker, right? Uh-huh. Just say no to chitta vrittis. Honk if if you you know honk if you just say no to <laughs> find out you know who's part of this esoteric inner circle. Yeah, and and then people who are still attracted to going to material heaven, they're still in the world, but they somehow have to deal with it, and so on. And that's and then you know if you're highly motivated. It's near, if you're not so highly motivated, if you're a little soft on it, it's a little farther away. So that, that's basically what he's saying. It, it's pretty basic, common sense stuff. When you really look at the Sanskrit, it's not so esoteric and, and... I mean, it's mystical in a sense, but it's really basic, simple stuff, practical stuff. So there's no other questions. We have refreshments. You, you've sat through all this, stu- all this talking, so uh, now you get your reward. So thank you very much. Hope we'll see you next Monday.